Hi, everyone. Thanks for checking out the Thrive Podcast. We are the Young Adult Ministry at Maranatha Bible Church, and we meet on Wednesdays at 730 in our Family Life Center. If you enjoy this podcast, we'd love for you to post it to your Instagram story and tag us at NBC Thrive on Instagram. Thanks again for joining us, and we hope you enjoy. Two are better than one, for they have good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Um, Tonight we're going to continue our IDK sermon series. And uh, if you weren't here the past couple weeks, we've been talking about how the sovereignty of God relates to our personal lives. We're going to talk about how it relates to us in our prayer relationship. We've already talked about how it relates um, just as God has control over everything in our life. Um, and, that, and that's important for friendship and community. That's what we're going to be talking about tonight. Um, sorry that I'm dressed up here like a Hollister model. I must have had this huge disconnect that there was actually like pouring down rain outside. So there's also a hole in my shoe. So if you just keep my, your attention up here, we'll all be good to go. Um, uh, if you have your Bible, we will be in 1 Samuel tonight, chapter 18. We're going to be talking about a pair of friends who are biblically renowned. And we're going to start actually in verses 17, 58. And I'll start there. It's chapter 18 of 1 Samuel. And Saul said to him, Whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I'm the son of your servant Jesse, the Bethlehemite. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David, and his armor, and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him, so that Saul set him over all the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. Wow, that's a tongue twister. So that's what we're going to be talking about today. And we're going to be talking about the importance of biblical friendship and the life of a, of a Christian person. And the reason we're going to be talking about this is as we go through the issues of our lives and as we wrestle with the sovereignty of God, um, it's easier to do it with somebody else. And if you were there, well, you should have been, I just read it. When I read the Ecclesiastes passage, and I talked about two are better than one for they have good reward for their toil. So we're kind of going to go through what the biblical definition of friendship is. We're kind of going to go through why a biblical friendship is important when we're struggling with what God says. And then we're going to kind of talk about what makes a good friend, what doesn't make a good friend, all that. Um, and so some pretext behind this passage is Jonathan is the son of King Saul. So God the people of Israel said to God, we want a king. We don't want you to be our king. We want a king. God said, okay, I'll give you Saul. Saul had a son named Jonathan. Now Saul was getting worse and worse and worse as a king. So as Saul is king, God says to his Samuel, who's the prophet, that's why it's called for Samuel, God says to Samuel, hey, I want you to go and talk to this David kid and anoint him to be king. Okay, there's already a king in Israel, and God has anointed him over king. So already we have some issue with God's sovereignty of God saying something and it not coming to fruition right yet in their life. And that's what we see with David and Jonathan, is that Jonathan here is a son of the king who's already king, and David has been anointed to be king. Do you see the problem? I was thinking of doing this analogy, but I think we're going to. <clears throat> it's like 
If Joe Biden were in this room and he had a son and I said, well, I'm the next president of the United States, just looked at him. I think Joe Biden would be like, no, I'm the president of the United States, right? Why? Because I'm fighting for his title. I said, oh, God anointed me with your title. You see kind of the enmity, the strife between these two people? And so that's important. And so what happens, though, is that as they're talking, it says the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And so our first point, what we're going to talk about, is that a biblical friendship, to start off with, starts with mutual desire. What I mean by that is like, this is going to be really earth-shattering to some people. If somebody doesn't want to be your friend, but you want to be their friend, are you guys friends? <laughs> exactly. You're the problem. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but right, all of us know people like that who, you know, follow you around like a puppy, and you want to be their friend, but not really, and they want to be your friend. Now, we're not going to be talking tonight about Christian love and the responsibility of Christians to love your neighbor as yourself. That is a huge, integral aspect of the Christian doctrine and one that we should all be familiar with, but if I were going to talk about that tonight and friendship, it would be way too much. We're going to be talking about friendship itself, solely. And friendship, not the Christian definition of love towards one neighbor, friendship starts with mutual desire. And you see this here. Whether it was the soul of Jonathan who knitted himself to the soul of David, I like the passive action. The soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. It's almost like Jonathan didn't have any choice in the matter. It was already knitted, right? He looked, oh my gosh, my soul's knitted to David. And you see this closeness, this intimacy of the fact that they are they're friends. They're friends. They have this emotional closeness. And it starts with mutual desire. But why does it start with mutual desire? Why can't I just force myself to be friends with somebody I don't want to be friends with? Because as we talk about God's sovereignty, as we talk about how the time, times are tough and life gets tough and it gets hard, if there's someone I'm friends with who they don't want to be friends with me or I don't want to be friends with them, am I going to go to them when I have a hard time? If I'm struggling with this really huge issue in my life, let's say I don't want to be someone's friend, they're a gossip, and they talk about everybody's secrets to everyone. They really want to be my friend, I don't want to be their friend. If, am I going to tell them the secret things that are going on in my life if I know that the moment it reaches their ears, it goes to everybody else's? No, right? That's why friendship has to start with two people who want to be each other's friend. You don't want to be their friend because you want it to be something more. You don't want to be their friend because you want to manipulate and use their lives for your own gain. You want to be their friendship. You want to continue in biblical friendship. So I hope that takes a lot of time, and I hope that made sense. The second thing that we see in biblical friendship that David and Jonathan have are self-sacrificial love. And you'll notice this here. I'm going to read the whole stripping part again. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. Now, Jonathan was the king's son. So when he has that sword, he is using the king authority. When he has the armor, he is going into the armor. He's the second guy in all Israel. If Saul were to die, who would be king? Jonathan. And so Jonathan takes off of all the stuff that gives him who he is, and he gives it to David. It's self-sacrificial. Um, and the king's son, these are things, these are garments of, of power and authority that he gives to David. And it also says he makes a covenant with David. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. Um, and a covenant between two parties says, no matter how I feel, I'm going to do what I've already promised. If you remember when God made that covenant with, covenant with Abraham, I talked about it last week, um, God didn't let Abraham walk through the covenant process together because the covenant had to be kept. 
And if a man were to keep the covenant, you wouldn't be able to keep it. And so God kept the covenant between the two. And you see the thing here is that Jonathan's making a covenant with David. I will always honor what I've promised. If you're in a tough time wrestling with what you think you should be in school for, your job or your parents, your relationship, whatever you're wrestling with God about, a friend is there to offer encouragement and guidance no matter the personal cost. It says in Proverbs, and I don't think I have this there, a friend loves at all times and a brother is born for adversity. And so a friendship that you have is going to love you at all times. Okay, have you guys ever had a friend who is they're depressed, and you notice that when you talk to them, you feel a little bit more depressed? Has anybody had a friend like that? Or they feel lonely? Oh, oh like, show of hands, nice. Or, uh, <laughs> or, you're lo- or they're really lonely, and you weren't thinking really about being lonely. You know, you were kind of vibing being single, and then they're like, nobody and you're like, oh my gosh, nobody loves me either. You know, does anybody have friends like that? No, I'm just kidding. People love me. <laughs> Hair flip. And so, but right, so what, what's happening there? When you're sharing what's going on in your life, you're imparting that to somebody else. I uh, got a Snapchat the other day that's a quote, and it said, trouble shared is trouble halved. If I share you the troubles that I'm facing, it halves the trouble on me. And so when biblical friendship is self-sacrificial, that means if somebody's coming up to me who's my friend and is talking to me and saying, hey, I'm really having a tough time at work or blah, 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 I sacrifice my happiness, let's say, to hear what they have to say because I might feel a little bit more depressed. I might feel a little bit more hurt. I might have tears. Good friend is always going to call you out where you need to be called out, even to their own sacrifice, right? They have to sacrifice their feeling of, you know, happiness with you. If they're going to talk to you, they're going to talk to you. Um, I read a survey a couple days ago that said the average American has 16 friends, period. From people they don't know, they have 16 friends. And out of those, three of them are lifelong friends. Three. That's what this survey said, three of them. And that's what we're talking about tonight. We're not talking about the people you know. We're not talking about the people you think you know. We're not talking about your 16 friends. We're talking about the three friends that you have who hopefully are Christians that you are like this with because this passage is telling us how we can be loving to them and how our relationship with them works. So it starts with mutual desire. It continues with self-sacrificial love. But friends grow fonder and fonder of each other. And we notice that at the end. It says here that the third one is emotional attachment. Because emotion starts a friendship, right? A desire, I want to be your friend. And steadfastness continues it, but friends grow more fond of each other. And I have 2 Samuel 126 up here. Um, and this is a real long time after, but that's why we're talking about the end of basically of a friendship. <clears throat> so what happens is Saul and David are, are, no, I'm sorry, Saul and Jonathan are fighting the Philistines. Saul's like, I'm out of here, I'm going to get killed. And then he basically kills himself. Jonathan dies fighting the Philistines. And David is there, and he's now king of Israel, but without his friend. And he gives this whole lament for Saul and Jonathan. He says here, I am very distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. And David was married to three wives at the time who were conniving, so that's probably why he said that. But what's going on here is that what David and Jonathan had was this emotional attachment close together that David's life was not the same when Jonathan wasn't in it anymore. Not in this unhealthy way, but in this way of, you were a friend to me and I couldn't have done the things that I did if you hadn't been in my life. And that's so important because there's this time, and it's this other story that it's in the middle of here, where David and Jonathan are doing this little arrows in the field thing. Hey, shoot the arrows beyond you if you have to leave. Shoot them close if you have to stay. 
And they do, and they get together, and David basically has to leave because Saul's angry. And they say that Jonathan cried and David cried, but it says in the Bible, David cried harder. Like it's this competition, you know, David's like, have to write a cried harder doing it. You know, like, but it's like they are so close to each other emotionally. And so we're talking about friendship, right? And you're like, okay, that kind of makes sense. We're kind of talking how friendship starts, how it continues, how it ends. Um, but now we're going to talk about what friendship, how it continues We're talking about what makes good friendship. Now we're going to talk about what makes good friends. Um, And friendship is a mixing of two people that push each other on to greater and greater spiritual growth. That's what it is. It says in Proverbs, whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companions of fools will suffer harm. So if I act like an idiot, there's a good chance that you could talk to my friends and they act like idiots too, right? If I am smoking and drinking and partying every day and you talk to my friends, are the chances going to be that they're golf people? Not really. I mean, well, maybe. No, I'm just kidding. No, right? They're probably not. They're probably going to smoke and drink and party. Why? Because there was this thing my teachers always said, show me your friends and I'll show you your future. It's like, that's dumb, but it's kind of true because if I have your friends, those are the people who are influencing you and molding you and shaping you. And that's why this stuff is so important. Friendship is a mixing of two people that push each other on to greater and greater spiritual growth. A good friend sees where you're at, So let's say I'm having a hard time. A good friend sees exactly where I'm at, and then they say what God has said over my life back to me. So they see where I'm at in whatever situation I'm at. Then they say what God has said over to my life, and then they push me to be more like Christ. And we're going to talk through all those. When you see someone where they're at, you listen. You hear the heart of what they're saying, and you sympathize with them. You make them feel loved. In our culture, there's an idea that like women need to be loved and men need solutions, or women need to be heard and men need solutions. It's not necessarily true biblically. Everybody needs to be heard. Everybody needs to be listened to and felt like they're a normal person, not dealing with something that's alien to them. Um, and so let's say I have somebody who comes up to me and says, you know, I'm never going to get married. I've never heard that before. Let me say somebody comes up and says, I'm never going to get married. Would it help them if I just quoted to them a statistic? Well, about 50% of people in this country get married. Would that help? Yes. <laughs> yeah, you're right. <laughs> uh, no, right? Because I actually have friends. He doesn't. And so I, ha- I know how to- Oh, I'm sorry. Oh. Ooh. So what happens, though, is that I have to understand how to react with people and to relate with them in an emotional way. And so how that happens is I hear the heart behind what they're saying. So... That starts with me listening and asking them questions. So if someone says, I'm never going to get married, and if I say, well, why do you feel like that? Well, I just feel alone all the time. Okay, now all of a sudden, I've delved it down to a deeper issue. And maybe I start asking more questions, and maybe I start talking to this person, and they're like, yeah, well, I just feel that, like, if God were so good, I wouldn't feel lonely all the time. And then that's where we're at, right? So I'm segregating the problem. What people say to you is normally not what they're actually feeling. And they probably don't know what they're actually feeling. If I'm in a you know, job that I hate, and I say to people, I just hate this job, I just hate this job. You ask me why, and you ask me why. Are the chances that I live and breathe that I actually hate my job? Maybe, but maybe it's because I'm discontent with my life. You have to be a psychologist to do some of this stuff. Maybe it's because I'm discontent with my life where it's at, or maybe it's because I'm frustrated with where I thought I'd be, or maybe I'm not making enough money. And then you, you, you isolate it down to the actual problem of what's going on in somebody's life. Because in order to be a good friend, what we're doing is we're seeing someone exactly where they're at. Not where they think they're at, but what they're at, where they're actually at. And, so, and then you help them see what God says about that underlying issue. 
So would it help if I told my friend, no, I'm not going to ask any more rhetorical questions. It wouldn't help if I told my friend who's like, I'm always going to be alone. Well, if you find a good wife, you find a good thing. You know, it says that in Proverbs. That's not going to help him because I need to say things that are kind and biblically construing to where he's at. Maybe I would say to him, listen, um, you, you maybe don't believe in the goodness of God. Maybe, you know, it says that God works all things together for the good of those who love him. Maybe this is a time to work on yourself and your singleness. Maybe this is a time to realize what God has said over you in front of God with no other external attachments. Maybe this is a time to make, you know, make yourself into the husband you need to be or make yourself into the wife you need to be. You know, there's a billion reasons, but if I talk about the, the top issue and don't get to the underlying issue, uh, that's, that's my fault. So I see someone where they're at, I tell them what God says about that underlying issue, and then I push them to be more like Christ. So answers starting in self end in defeat. And I wrote that, I think that's good, I'm saying again. Answers starting in self end in defeat. So you don't need more self-love. Wow, everyone's like, I don't agree with that. You don't need more self-love. You don't need more self-actualization. You don't need more self-esteem, okay? I'm, maybe you don't agree with that. I don't need to love myself more through my issues. I need to realize that God has already loved me as much as anybody could by sending his son to die for me, right? I don't need to find some you know, beautiful butterfly in my heart. I need to realize that God the Father sent his son to die for me. That's the important part. I don't need to self-actualize. I don't need to get to this point in my life where I'm like, Okay, you know, stare at, you know, I see people at the mirror, you know, they have the mirror. I'm not going to say it. Maybe somebody has it. You know, you say these 10 things over yourself. I'm beautiful. I'm brave. I'm proud. I'm kind. I'm whatever. You don't need more self-actualization where you realize who you are from the inside out, right? The heart is deceitfully wicked and desperately sick. You need to realize that when Christ came onto this earth and died for you, you have all the freedom in the world to become where you need to be. And you don't need any more self-esteem either. Because self-esteem says, you don't realize how good you are. And believing in Christ says, you don't realize how bad you were before Christ came and died for you. Because once God instills your identity, once Christ instills who you are, that completely changes the game of who that we think that we have to be. And to understand this point and how it relates to friendship, we're going to go to 1 Peter 1, 22-23. I love this passage. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of an imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. We're going to take this slow because this is a lot of words. Having purified your souls, right, you're purifying your soul, by your obedience to the truth. So how do I purify my soul? By an obedience to the truth for. Now, why would I be doing all this, Peter says? For a sincere brotherly love. The desire is that I would know how to love people more. I would know how to love people in a better way. I would learn how to love people that wasn't so selfish, that wasn't so conniving, that wasn't so desperate, that wasn't so maniacal, whatever. And then I take what that, that desire to love people, and then I realize that I can do that by obeying the truth. By purifying my soul. And that's important because the answer doesn't rest in you. The answer isn't you in becoming a good friend. The answer isn't, you know, you finding yourself. The answer isn't realizing that Christ has been such a good friend to you. He died on the cross for you. And rest in Christ in obedience to the truth. 
Why do we push people towards the truth? Why is all this friendship stuff, Christ, 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 push them in Christ, make sure they find their identity in Christ, become Christ? Because that, that's the only way to love them. For sincere brotherly love, we purify our souls by our, our obedience to the truth. In the good and bad and easy and hard times, we rest on the word of God and the word of Christ. Friendship is important. When Jesus came down to earth, he heavily invested in 12 guys. Right? He came down to earth, there were 12 guys, and he invested in them. But do you know how many close relationships Jesus had? Three, right? It's funny, I read that survey. I was like, Americans have three close friends. When Jesus came down to earth, he had three close friends. That's odd. Maybe there's something there, maybe there's not. But it's the fact of the matter that we can't overextend ourselves so much to be. It's like at the end of The Incredibles, you know, Syndrome's walking out of Mr. Incredible. He's like, when everyone's super, no one will be. You remember that? Wow, nobody watching Incredibles in here. That sucks. Anyway, he says that, and it's like, if everybody is your closest, closest, closest friend, you're not actually going to have a close friend, because if everybody knows everything about you, then nobody knows anything about you. Does that make sense? If I have this set tolerance of this is what anybody can know about me, then nobody knows anything about you, because the actual person is who you are when you look ugly and frustrated and mean and hateful. When people know those parts about you, when you what does it say? When anybody exposes his, lights, his works to the light, he becomes light. Um, to fight against us, Satan chips away at the importance of the other and feeds into the idea that either we don't need anyone or we need someone to survive. And so with friendship, what happens is there's two extremes. Um, I don't need anybody. It's me and my own man. That's the one person. The other person is like, oh my gosh, what did they say about me? I can't believe they said that. That must mean where you constantly are overthinking about what people are saying to you. And you're either in one of those two camps. Um, I know what camp I'm in, and I'm not going to tell you, and you know what camp you're in, where you're like constantly either to say, I don't need any friendship, or I need you know, people to survive, whether whatever type of relationship. But Christ frees you from both extremes of that. The power of Christ frees you from both extremes of that. In Christ, you're free to make friendships that are emotionally committed, but they're not emotionally unhealthy. I can be committed to somebody emotionally but not in an unhealthy way where I actually don't care about them at all, or not in an unhealthy way where I grasp on every word they say and their condemnation is life or death to me. In Christ, you're free to stop expecting nothing from people or stop expecting everything from people, and you're free to start actually giving to people in Christ. Friendship in Christ, when David and Jonathan, that friendship cost Jonathan something. That friendship cost David something. And when David's king, the son, Meshivatheth, Mephibosheth, whatever. Jonathan was a good guy, but not good at kids' names. But when his, his son's a cripple, David takes care of his son for the rest of his life. Says, you know, your father was so good to me, I'm taking care of you. That was personal sacrifice on David's part. And, you know, Mephibosheth was a good guy and knew that he was, you know, under the grace of David because of his father. Friendship costs something. And in Christ, we're free to stop expecting nothing from people and stop expecting everything from people and to start giving to them sacrificially. Christ has called you his friend. On the night before when he was betrayed, he said to his disciples, no longer do I call you servants. There's this whole parable, <clears throat> backstory. I was at the Heartful Hardware selling Festool, the best power tool company in the world, and I had this guy come up to me, and I didn't know he was a religious fundamentalist at the time. You know, came up like that. And we're talking, and we're just getting, you know, talking, 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 talking. And he said, well, we're servants of God. He said, we're servants of God. And he quoted a parable to me. He said, 
when servants are reclining, will servants who deck the master's table come and recline with him? No, they will say, we're only unworthy servants. We have done our duty. He said the parable, you know, actually word for word. And um, I was like, that's a horrible way to view the Christian life. But I didn't know why. And then I'm reading in this passage where at the very night that Jesus was betrayed, he says, no longer do I call you servants. Right? I, because servants don't know what their master is doing. But I call you friends. You're friends if you do what I command you. And Jesus called you his friend. And there, and there is a way where you're still a servant of God, right? But you're a son. You're not a slave. You're a son of God. You're a friend of God. You're God's child. And so that is what starts this reaction in ourselves that helps us react to other people. In Christ, he's called you his friend. And Peter says that we can love each other, even in the hard times, because we have been born again, not a perishable seed, but imperishable. It would be really hard if I only thought that I had 80 years on this earth to really give sacrificially. I don't know how people do it who aren't Christians to... They only have a limited time. I don't know why I would be kind to anybody. Really, I have to be kind. Some people are stupid, and I just have to be here and like nod my head out of kindness for them. If I only had 80 years, I'd say everything that came to my mind. But why don't I? Because I believe in life after death. I believe that people are eternal. I believe that they have souls. I believe that there's punishment for action. And it says here, I have been born again, not of perishable seed, right? I'm not a son of my mom and dad anymore. I'm a son of God. I'm an born of imperishable seed through the living and abiding word of God. That's what starts good friendship. That's what starts a, a good way of looking at people and our relationship to them. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we admit that it's confusing to read your word and understand exactly this huge issue and to understand how to deal with people in a way that's loving and biblical. We're so thankful that you've given us friendship. We're thankful that you've given us um, people with whom that we, we can bear their trials and their burdens with. We're thankful that you did that for us, God. We couldn't pay the punishment. We couldn't pay the price that our sin had exacted upon us, and you did it for us because you're our friend and our father. We love you, God, and we're so thankful for you. In your son's name, amen.